G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. A fascinating conversation with insights into Australia's colonial history at a time when monuments are under threat and revisionists would like to see Australia's Christian heritage erased. Well, our history has come into more intense focus in recent times. Since the rise of Black Lives Matter and some fairly aggressive activism, not only around the world, but also seemingly rising here in Australia. Well, around the world and here at home, there has been an emerging questioning of attitudes and actions, well, towards slavery on the bigger global scale and Indigenous peoples, which takes us into our home environment. Well, two of the biggest names in Australian history, Lachlan and Elizabeth Macquarie are among those being scrutinised and reassessed. Well, they are the subject of a new book. It's called Judging the Macquaries. They arrived at the penal colony of New South Wales in 1809. Lachlan was the new governor. Elizabeth, his wife, was his closest friend and fiercest supporter. The colony was an unruly mix of convicts, soldiers and settlers. Well, award-winning author, historian and linguist John Harris, who never balks at handling controversial subjects, has a new book. It's called Judging the Macquaries, Injustice and Mercy in Colonial Australia. He tackles the disputes that marked Lachlan Macquarie's period as governor and the controversies which still surround his actions today. Judging the Macquaries is now one of the shortlisted titles for this year's Australian Christian Book of the Year Awards. And it is our absolute privilege to welcome John Harris back to 2020. John, great to talk to you again. Good to be here now. John, we can't get into a conversation fully without talking a little bit about your lifelong pursuits. Uh, You're so well qualified. Three doctorates, one in Aboriginal languages, one in theology, and a very prestigious Lambeth Doctorate from Her Majesty the Queen and the Archbishop of Canterbury. And this has been your pursuit. What happens in early Australia and uh, our Aboriginal history and how that has shaped us to the present. Give us a little bit of insight into what drives you to write this book. Well, there's a story to writing this book, Neil, because... um 2017 was the bicentenary of the Bible Society, which is Australia's um, longest surviving registered organisation, two weeks older than Westpac, (laughs) the back of New (laughs) New South Wales, which uh, gives us a great deal of pleasure. And uh, Elizabeth is the person who was sort of behind Lachlan in saying, come on, Lachlan, come on, Lachlan, we need a Bible Society. And so... I wanted to honour her, or the Bible Society wanted to honour her, so they said, look, can you can you write a small book about Elizabeth? Which I started to do, and I realised you could not separate Elizabeth from her husband. 
You've got this team effort uh, in some sense as Christians. We understand the idea of a marriage, the two becoming one flesh. And that's a wonderful example of what it is, a man and wife working hand in hand. And in a sense here, Lachlan as governor, but Elizabeth, and I mentioned in the introduction, his fiercest supporter, his best friend, uh, truly a, a wonderful sort of image of marriage, isn't it? Well, it is. And another wonderful thing in there is, of course, that Elizabeth was no doubt the certainly the stronger Christian, a strong evangelical Christian, and Lachlan, a, a, I won't say nominal, not, Lachlan a Christian as well, but not really outward about it until he married Elizabeth, who I'm sure guided and helped him. And it's very interesting. I mean, Elizabeth was an underliner of texts in her Bible, and uh, Lachlan too copied her a bit and underlined things. But um, I think that she was a huge influence over him. I think in modern terms, um, she would have liked to have had more power. Some of her critics, because a, a lot of people, particularly men, didn't like her because, um, because of her forceful personality. A lot of them said she would have preferred to be the, the governess than the wife of the governor. <laughs> Okay, well, the idea of uh, her prompting Lachlan uh, to preside over that first meeting of the British and Foreign Bible Society, the formation of, as as you say, the longest uh, legal-running entity in Australia, and uh, what a great privilege that is. But here is uh, a woman, uh, Elizabeth Macquarie, who is uh, the driving force but says, Lachlan, you need to be the chair of that meeting. And uh, and that's had such incredible impact on the whole of the history of Australia, hasn't it? Well, it has, it has indeed. I mean, <clears throat> Elizabeth was involved before that in trying to get the Bible out to people. And she formed a little kind of a collection of Bibles, which she got from other, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> landed gentry's wives and all that kind of thing. And she had a little collection as, as a lending library. And she was very, very keen uh, on the Bible getting into people's hands. And um, someone put into her hand a report from the Bible Society of Colombo, which is now Sri Lanka, which started a few years before the Bible Society in Australia. And there, there was a letter from the governor's wife who was had some role in that Bible Society. And she said, well, look, if the governor's wife can get, do it in Sri Lanka, why can't we do it here? And uh, that's what actually prompted her to go to Lachlan. And Lachlan's advisor said, look, the time's not right. The economy's a bit down. There's not a lot of money around. But Lachlan didn't take much notice of them. Went ahead anyway. And uh, the money was certainly forthcoming. Before we go any further, John, just for every listener listening into our conversation right now, when we hear the name Macquarie, uh, the number of landmarks, the number of streets, uh, universities, banks uh, that are named after the Macquaries is just incredible. There'll be people listening to us in communities right now that are named after uh, the Macquaries, uh, whether it's uh, Macquarie as a surname or Elizabeth as a first name. Uh, these names are everywhere, aren't they? Uh, they are indeed, and it's one of the gentle criticisms of Macquarie that he built buildings and named them after himself and and uh, <laughs> discuss, you know, set out new towns and named them after his wife, who was, of course, as listeners may or may not know, Elizabeth Campbell. And so, of course, we have Campbelltown. And uh, 
she also, her house was Aird's, and Aird's is one of the suburbs of Campbelltown, and so on. But you're right, there's a Macquarie River, there's the Lachlan River, and so on and so on. So they've left their mark on our geography and, uh, and on our urban landscape as well. Uh, the city of Port Macquarie, uh, Macquarie Pass, uh, that uh, traverses right. the escarpment there between the Illawarra District and the Southern Highlands in New South Wales. In Sydney, Macquarie Street, Macquarie Place, Macquarie Fields, the suburb of Sydney. And uh, just uh, there's Macquaries everywhere. And of course, in Tasmania, there are Macquaries yes, all over there. the place. Yeah. Uh, incredible uh, impact that they have had. And as you say, it may be a criticism, but they certainly have left a legacy. Now, if you're taking a big picture here, John Harris, and yep. uh, you're saying these are people, there are lots of landmarks that are named after the Macquaries. Has their influence upon Australia's history been a primarily positive influence in the way that we've grown as a nation and that Christian foundation that we even have as a nation? Or is there some things in there that we maybe can draw attention to that, you know, maybe they didn't get everything right? Well, that's very true, and who does? And, uh, you know, the Macquaries were um, devoted Christian people, but we know as Christians... um, you know, I was listening to your last speaker. We know as Christians that we we can err. And uh, Macquarie, you know, made one big error, which I will come to later, you know, and that is uh, in one incident in his otherwise decent treatment of Aboriginal people, the, the so-called Appen Massacre. But Macquarie really created the Australia as we now know it. That is, he emancipated the convicts and said, go and do it, you know, just go and do it, go and make this into something. His predecessor, like Governor, Governor uh, Bly, Governor Bly emancipated, that's like a parole, like emancipation is one step before total freedom. He, he emancipated two convicts who he thought were decent people and wanted to give, and you know, they could use their skills. Macquarie emancipated over 1,600. And the truth is, we know a lot of their names today. They are their names like Wentworth and Redfern and um, Fairfax and, you know, David Jones. And, you know, they're people who went on to actually make Australia. And, and they, yeah, they made Australia and they made this the populace and... and um, great place to live in that it is today. And this is the foundation of one of the big controversies here, and that is that the chaplains of the early colony uh, often had run-ins with the governors of the early colony, and there was a significant run-in that we can draw attention to, and that is the run-in between the chaplain Samuel Marsden uh, who, in amongst all the good things that he did, and he's like a hero in New Zealand, but uh, but in Australia he was known as the flogging parson. And, uh, and he had some different ideas around the formation of the discipleship of the early nation, if you put it that way, uh, to what Lachlan Macquarie had. You've been examining that in quite a lot of detail, haven't you, John? Yes, it's a major theme in the book, because here, although in a sense it's a... Um 
secular book, but of course it's been put up for the Christian Book of the Year because a, a big proportion of it is the theological tension between Marsden and Macquarie. Now, I'll come to that in a minute, but I need to say, when you talk about the flogging parson and so on, that we need to speak in the singular about the chaplains and not in the plural. Uh, the huge number, by and large, all of the chaplains were decent, selfless, um, giving people. I mean, uh, Lachlan Macquarie's own pastor, William Cowper, at St. Philip's in Sydney, refused to be made a magistrate. Even when Macquarie, knowing he was such a good man, said, I want decent people on the bench, he refused to be a magistrate because he said it will compromise the gospel, it will compromise my ministry. Uh, and, and this is the true of many of the clergy, whereas Marsden was just desperate to become uh, a magistrate. And Marsden loved his authority as a magistrate. He said altar and government, you know, altar and, you know, church and government work together. And he believed that society had been structured by God his more famous sermons, he said, God is in charge of the social structure of heaven, the ordering of the angels, and he is in charge of the ordering of society on earth. And Marsden believed that once you had become a convict, you had lost your status, never to be regained. Whereas Macquarie saw transport as enough punishment. And when they got here, once they'd proved themselves for a little while as decent people, let them free and restore, that was one of his important phrases, restore them back to society. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Facebook, there's a question there. As a Christian, do you think Australians have been taught accurate history of colonial settlement and indigenous people you find that question at facebook.com forward slash vision radio our special guest is dr john harris author of over a hundred books and papers including the award-winning major work called one blood john if we talk about your interest here in indigenous history in australia uh, Lachlan Macquarie's leadership was judged primarily by his handling of convicts, not for the handling of relationships with Indigenous Australians. Is that something of a, 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 a something someone missed in there? People didn't care. The British government, the British Empire, didn't care about the Indigenous people. Um, Lachlan Macquarie was frustrated because it's the one thing he wanted guidance uh, about. He was constantly over that 10 years saying, now I've done this and this, or, or should I do this and that for the Aboriginal people here? He never once got a reply. No one ever cared about that. They replied about what he should do with the harbour, what he should do about the price of wheat, what he should do about the female convicts, but they never replied about what he should do about Aboriginal people. And Lachlan, we have to see him as a governor in the British Empire. And Lachlan believed in the British Empire. And I guess he believed as well that, you know, that Christianity, as it was expressed in the, English, in the European Church and particularly in the English Church, was, was 
civilised Christianity and that this was a gift that they could give to Aboriginal people. So he saw Aboriginal people as the equal of all the other non-Aboriginal people, the white people. They were British citizens to Macquarie. But that brought them both under British protection and British law. Now, the interesting thing is here, uh, while his treatment of Aboriginal people uh, is going to be remembered in a bad light because of uh, one or two significant issues, and uh, from what I can glean, uh, his policy toward Aboriginal Australians uh, consisted of cooperation and assimilation, but... It was backed by military coercion, in fact, uh, sent in the military. Uh, This is one of those things that I guess will leave a a black spot on Australia's history. Yes, that is true. Um, But Lachlan Macquarie was more open, more, it's hard to think of a word, friendly, actually, decent towards Aboriginal people, according to his view of the world, of course, that was on his terms. But he was, I think, no man has been as, as, as thoughtful since. He, sure, he had taken the land from them, and he knew that the British had taken the land, but he gave them land, and he gave them better land than he gave to the, the white settlers who complained. Do you know he actually even assigned to those Aboriginal people that he placed on land convict servants? to till the land for them. And he he insisted that Aboriginal children play with his young son, Lachlan Jr. And when he celebrated Lachlan Jr.'s birthdays, it was always with Aboriginal children. And the last thing he ever did before he left the colony was have a party with Aboriginal people on a ship in the middle of the harbour. Like, but, there's the big but, There came a time when the colony was starving, crops had failed, Uh, there'd been, I think, a kind of El Nino, but Aboriginal peoples themselves, they too were suffering from the same El Nino. So the Aboriginal people across in the Blue Mountains and, you know, west of Sydney, across the Corkspree, across the Nepean, they crossed over into what had become European, if you like, British Sydney, and attack the farms and, uh, you know, to get sheep and corn and all the rest of it because they too were starving and this was their land. And on that occasion, Macquarie sent troops to all different parts of, of the Nepean Hawkesbury River to drive the distant tribes, as he referred to them, back not the tribes that were within Sydney, many of whom were acting as scouts and guides and so on to his troops. So they did force them back. But in one place, there was a death, and that was just near Appen. And there's a memorial there today, the Appen Massacre, and 13 Aboriginal people died in the Appen Massacre because of a, a an army commander that was too gung-ho. But... But yes, the, the buck stops with Macquarie. And so that is, that is a blight. Well, it's not a blight on his character. I mean, who of us doesn't have a blight on our character? But it's an error, and it's an error which he, he came to regret.
Law and order, when there are no accountability structures beyond uh, what might be coming from Great Britain, uh, as you say, the buck stops there. Uh, It's on his shoulders. Uh, But that would be one of potentially many massacres of Aboriginal people throughout our colonial history. I wonder whether did that in in any sense sort of set any scenes or were there actually earlier massacres that we're not talking about right now? Yes, there are certainly earlier massacres. Um, there was the Battle of, Battle of Parramatta, for example, which could well have been won by the Aboriginal people. It was a bit of a close thing, but superior, superior methods. But uh, on the part of, you know, the guns, I'm really saying, as opposed to spears and so on. No, I don't think that he set a pattern at all. In fact, um, the governors which followed him were worse, and the you know a lot worse than him, and had didn't have his restraint. And uh, uh, we have the more famous massacres like uh, you know, that come after him, when Aboriginal people are killed willy-nilly for no reason. Not that not that Macquarie's reason was sufficient, but the. Uh, massacre of Aboriginal people simply to get rid of them pursued was pursued throughout all of that century and into into the 20th century. John Harris is our guest. John, before we go any further, perhaps uh, I've got a caller who's been waiting patiently. Let's take a call. Jason is in Melbourne. Hello, Jason. Good afternoon, John. And also, Neil, I'd like to make a point regarding, John, what he said that Macquarie said, I agree. We need to others who do wrong need to show their worth in the community and then can be restored. I agree because that's what God does. He restores lives and he restored mine. Good thoughts there, Jason. Now, get a thought here from John Harris because uh, you were making that point earlier on. Uh, There is this mercifulness about a second chance Uh, which we're bringing into contrast here, and uh, perhaps the early chaplains, the Christian leaders, uh, in some sense here, were not quite so merciful as uh, Governor Macquarie. What are your thoughts for Jason? Well, thank you, Jason, and uh, what a wonderful testimony that is in just a few words. Jason, you say the exact words that Macquarie himself said. Macquarie was um, a good Anglican, and uh, only people my age remember the old prayer book. But uh, he used the old prayer book, as, as I did when I was, a, I was young, uh, before they put it into modern English. And he underlined what is called the absolution. He underlined that in his prayer book. And the absolution is when, after people have confessed their sin, the minister at the front says, you are, you are forgiven, God has forgiven you. And the words are, God desires not the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live. And Macquarie wrote that in other ways many times in his life. It was the last thing he ever wrote. The last thing he wrote was, if the author of the universe desires not death, but life, how much more should we forgive and restore? So, you know, that was Macquarie's underlying belief. So thank you for giving me a chance to say it, Jason. (laughs) 
Jason, I want to thank you so much for being patient and uh, thanks for great insight. And our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. And uh, interestingly here, as I'm hearing uh, of Governor Macquarie's response, and as a Christian man, and as we discussed a little earlier, uh, really uh, empowered by his uh, somewhat deeper in faith Christian wife, Elizabeth, And something here in the contrast with uh, even the early chaplains in Australia, because from my understanding, John, uh, Richard Johnson, the first chaplain, he was not very successful in reaching out with the gospel to the Aboriginal people. And then you had Samuel Marsden, uh, who expected to civilise the Aboriginal people before Christianising them. I wonder if you've got some thoughts here in, into how all of these perspectives perhaps tie together, but all of them in some sense here are very Christian. Yes, well, the chaplains, yes, and I will in, indeed answer all those. The chaplains, of course, had a lot of work to do. They weren't appointed as missionaries, and, and you know, that wasn't their role. And um, I've got some sympathy with poor old Richard Johnson because, you know, he had to be the person who preached to convicts who were, you know, herded into church and sat with um, timber sort of because between them so they couldn't see each other. And, and possibly some convict burnt his church down, <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. <laughs> um, but he cared about Aboriginal people, and when the terrible um, plague uh, killed off all the Aboriginal people of, of just about of of the near Sydney region, the Gadigal people of around Sydney, he was one who adopted one of the two living children and uh, tried to care for her. And I have I have a lot of time for Richard Johnson. But Samuel Marsden came out, and Samuel Marsden immediately regarded the Aboriginal people as primitive and uncivilised, and he famously said, they are not ready for the gospel. They have no wants, and if you have no wants, how can, they, how can you preach the gospel to them? In other words, he tied the gospel to the desire for material things, that is, the desire to be a to live in a house and have a farm and have furniture and you know he tied all that to being able to be a Christian Uh, they have no wants which is the thing today which we admire about Aboriginal people as being non-material whereas he famously also said about the New Zealanders they have plenty of wants (laughs) and what meant was that they had a desire for European goods and so they welcomed the missionaries this is before they became Christian they welcomed the missionaries because they saw the missionaries as a source of European goods and I'm afraid to say some of that was liquor and muskets and there were some some missionaries who got involved in that sort of trade so um, this idea of civilization must precede Christianization uh, was what Marsden believed. Is there a sense in which part of that civilization process may have been the desire to teach reading and writing? Because I note that uh, Lachlan Macquarie established what was a civilizing institute that became known as Native Institution, and Elizabeth was one of the original superintendents of that organization. So, uh, almost as though there was a blockage there in 
the idea of civilised before Christianised, but here's an initiative that's coming from the governor and his wife that says maybe we can bridge the gap here and we can bring that civilization and Christianisation under one banner and uh, educate people. Well, <clears throat> that would probably have been the effect, although I, I don't know that Macquarie exactly saw it in those terms. But Macquarie, Macquarie placed a missionary uh, who'd... Um, escaped from um, some um, danger in the island, in the Pacific Islands. He placed a missionary in charge of that. And part of the curriculum was, of course, learning to read. And, and as happens in missionary schools all over the world, what are you going to learn to read? What are you going to learn to read the Bible? Um, and sure, that went on. And, and some of those children, indeed, well, they were very successful for a start. Uh, well, they, had a, they used to have colonial examinations, and um, in the first colonial examination after that school opened, a girl there, Maria, got the highest marks. And the newspapers, the Sydney Morning Herald and so on, were very critical. What's up with these white children? They can't even do as well as the black children. Um, you know, they, they dispelled the view that they were unintelligent. But they became Christians, many of those children. I mean, some of them left. It wasn't stolen generations. There's a lot of pressure put on them to stay. And there's a lot of pressure put on their parents for them to stay. But they knew who their parents were. They knew where their country was. And if they absolutely wanted to leave, no one could stop them climbing over the fence and going. And many did. But some remained and became, you know, part of, part of Greater Sydney. And, and their, their sort of descendants are still alive. Maria, who was the first, that girl I spoke about, hers was the first Christian marriage in, in Australia. So yes, it did. It did have that effect. Yes. I wonder if we get a perspective on where things are at today in the 21st century here, John, given uh, what we've been talking about there and uh, the formation of education. And as you say, the Bible used in that formation of education and it's gone on and uh, has permeated Australian society all through the centuries. And I wonder if you've got a perspective of how you see things today for Indigenous Australians and for non-Indigenous Australians. I think that missions, by and large, have been a great influence for good. And I'm just writing now again the history of some of the northern, the Rope River Mission and other places up there that provided a haven for Aboriginal people who were being massacred. Now, I know that there were some missions that were stern and uh, controlling. And I know also, I must say here, very few missionaries ever took children. They were taken by police, truant officers, all sorts of other people. What some churches did was run homes to which those children were sometimes, uh, in which those children were placed. The churches ran children's homes, but the churches, and they were party to government policy, but, but not very many, very, very few missionaries went around actually taking children. But what I want to say is, Macquarie, for all his attempts to be decent, in a British sense, to Aboriginal people did not recognise the prior, the prior crime of the theft of land. And I'm one of those who believes that Aboriginal people were perfectly capable of entering into contracts and treaties and that had, they, had this been sought, 
It might have taken months, it might have taken a long time, but if, if this had been sought, Aboriginal people would have cooperated with it and we would have a very different situation. You know, if Admiral Arthur Phillip and the First Fleet, if the first thing they'd done is go and sat on the beach and placed some gifts in front of them and waited for the Aboriginal people to come down and, and, and be given some kind of gift and, uh, and show them that we were coming in peace, um, it would have been a different world. And we still have not dealt with that. We have not dealt with the prior crime. This was not terra nullius. This was not an empty land with no human beings in it. It was not a godless land. God lives in and sustains his universe, and he lives in every part of the world that he created. And the Aboriginal people were religious people. And the religious people is the mark of those who know there is God and try to seek God. And of course, we can all go off the rails in how we seek God. But Aboriginal people sought God and recognized God in their environment. And uh, we have failed to recognize that in them, and we have failed to recognize their deep attachment and ownership of the land. And we have failed so far even to have some kind of treaty. So I'm one of those who thinks that we should have a treaty and that should be recognised eventually in our constitution. Do you think, John, that uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians have this rift because of uh, those events that go right back to uh, these days of the Macquarie's, and that is something that is difficult to resolve without uh, this idea of forgiveness and being able to press forward beyond uh, the history. You somehow rather have to heal the history before you can move ahead. Is that a is that something That's relevant true. to think? <clears throat> That's true. Um, you know, until we have to heal the past, and uh, I'm not saying that it's easy. But, but it's, it's, you know, I think it is coming closer. I mean, it was wonderful of Kevin Rudd to say sorry, but let's get that straight. Kevin Rudd, who, by the way, is a very devoted Christian person, but Kevin Rudd uh, did not say sorry for the invasion and oppression of Aboriginal Australia. He was saying sorry to the stolen generations. Sorry that we took your children. Sorry that we institutionalised them. Sorry that we um, hid from them even where they came from. That is what he apologised for, and that was a genuine apology, and it will go down along with Martin Luther King and everything else as one of the great speeches of history. But he did not apologise for the initial crime. And that still has to be resolved. There's still an issue that needs to be resolved from Australia's history. I think listeners will hear what you are saying there. Come back to Lachlan Macquarie here, because as history remembers Lachlan Macquarie, uh, his superiors considered him far too lenient. Uh, and yet uh, he's recognised as a, a father or the father of Australia. I wonder whether you've got any thoughts here about his leniency and that mercy, which is the element of the title of your book, uh, actually is uh, one of his strongest virtues. It was his virtue, and <clears throat> friend and enemy alike knew that. 
It's the interesting thing. His friends said he's a decent, merciful, forgiving man. His enemies said he's too soft, he's too lenient. You know, everybody that is his defining virtue. And in the end, that was how... Sorry, I've got sorry, I've got noise here. I'm still with you. Okay, you're still with us, and we can't hear that noise. So, uh... okay, that's all right. Thank you. Um, his superiors had sent him out to be the governor of a jail, of a penal colony, with all the powers that a governor of a jail had in that time to do as he would with people. But he came to a colony which had free settlers as well. And he had a vision that it wouldn't be just a jail, it would become something. But that vision brought him up against the powers that be in Britain, particularly when they got their information from Marsden's cronies, some of whom were actually uh, in the British Parliament. And so uh, he was criticised a great deal, and the effect of these criticisms was that the terrible thing was the time lag. He could, someone could write a letter criticising something Macquarie had done. That would take six months to get to England, and he wouldn't even know the criticism had been made. And if he was lucky, they might reply to that letter and ask him to explain himself, and that letter would come back to him after another six months. And so a year has passed, and he hasn't even been able to answer the criticism, and people have forgotten about it. You know, it doesn't really matter anymore, all that kind of thing. And this is huge time lapse. And so in the end, he had to resign. He was allowed to resign. And it was said of him, he had failed to make New South Wales a place of sufficient terror. And that ought to make us all shiver a little with the idea that that was coming from uh, his British superiors. Time is running short, John. I'm wondering if we talk about the title of your book and recent developments, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, and putting aside for a moment that there are some cultural Marxist uh, foundations for what has driven that, uh, what we might appreciate is that black lives do matter, but there is a push for this historic revisionism, which wants to take Christianity out of our heritage, wants to take it out of our education curriculum. Uh, What about the place of the Macquarie's in our history and at a time when, as you say, judging the Macquarie's, they are under scrutiny? What are your thoughts here? Well, I hope that my book helps that issue and there's already some thoughts of turning it into a school textbook or something, even if it goes to the Christian schools only, but um, one would hope it would go further. But um, yes, there is historic revisionism and where errors in the past are corrected then that kind of historic revisionism um, is very important. And so there's a sense of historic revisionism in my book to a point. But there's another kind of historic revisionism to which you allude, and that is writing Christianity out of history as if it had no place and never did anything, writing Christians out of history. Now that is, is as bad as, you know, the Japanese writing histories that, say the war didn't happen order sorry that's a bit unfair 
writing writing corrected histories that hide from uh, Japanese school children the horrors of the war or whatever. Uh, it's just as bad uh, to write Christians out of history as if it wasn't there. And that's something which we should try and and do something about. And, and Christian historians are trying to do something about it. We are few and far between. But I hope I've written a book that will go beyond uh, simply the Christian audience and will become influential beyond that. And this says that he was a Christian man. Yes, a man with faults, a man who made a grave error. But he was a Christian, and that's what drove him to act with justice and to act with mercy. And for every listener, and whenever you come across the name Macquarie, it's a reminder of our Christian heritage and that uh, while there are so many good things to remember about the Macquaries, yes, there was a flaw or two. Judging the Macquaries, and uh, the book is shortlisted, it's one of the titles on the shortlist for this year's Australian Christian Book of the Year Awards and an absolute privilege to be able to get your insights personally today, John. And I know listeners who've been listening in will recognise the value of a conversation like this. And uh, let me just give the title of the book for listeners who want to get a hold of it. It's called Judging the Macquaries, Injustice and Mercy in Colonial Australia. You'll be able to find that at Coorong and all online booksellers at Judging the Macquarie's Injustice and Mercy in Colonial Australia. John Harris, just an absolute privilege. Thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with listeners today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. It was a privilege to be with you too. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 